This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. I'm Marcus Costello. Coming up, how was the media blindsided by Trump's win? Then we'll be wading into the Trump versus media elitism battle. And finally, what's behind the big push to tear up Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act? Joining me in the studio from Daily Life and SBS Life is Rumi Habit. Hello, Rumi. Hi. And joining us from the Tally Room and The Guardian Australia, Ben Rowie. Hey, Ben. Hi. And joining us on the line is Canberra-based writer Mark Fletcher. Hi, Mark. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Let's get into it. Leading up to the US election, we heard time and again how Trump supporters will believe what they want to believe. But did the media believe what they want to believe? Did they laugh off Trump because they didn't want to believe that he had a real chance? Well, most pinned Trump's chances somewhere between 2 and 15%. How did things change so dramatically in the final few hours? Ben, just how valuable are polls in light of what we saw? I think polls, polls are never perfect. Polls never give you the whole answer and they always have a degree of error. And uh, the polling error in the 2016 election was actually less than in 2012. Uh, Barack Obama in 2012 did significantly better than what his polls predicted. And nobody noticed because it wasn't a close election, basically. And I think what's interesting is not so much how accurate the polls were. They were they were a bit off. You know, it's not perfect. More that um, there was so much confidence in how accurate they were that there wasn't any sense of uncertainty. Like... Hillary Clinton was leading in the polls. It was probably fair to treat her as the front runner, but I think it's interesting about whether people gave Trump a two percent chance or a thirty percent chance because that's a real difference. The thirty percent chance is is quite likely to happen, and we saw like five thirty eight Nate Silver gave him a thirty percent chance at the end and was actually closer to forty percent until a few days before, and that's um, I think I think actually. When you look at it that way, you look at that and you say, that's actually a decent chance that he was given. And to what extent uh, does groupthink play into this, that there's a real confidence bias in any which, direct, in any which way because the polls are so confident? I think, I think that is a factor. I think it was a particularly a strong factor with Donald Trump because he was so unique and so unusual. He's the first uh, US president to ever be elected without any military or government experience. It's never happened. Uh, and people like him have have never really even won their party's nomination. So I think there was this uh, this sense that he uh, people assumed that something would happen that would uh, revert to the normal state of U.S. politics, and that allowed them to be overconfident and selective in the information that they looked at. I've got a quote here from your colleague Greg Jericho from the Guardian, who said. Quote, reporting on polls automatically converts the coverage into a horse race. That coverage is a massive media fail and poll aggregators greatly increase the failure. So have we missed out on 
a proper substantive debate if if all we're talking about is just how decisive Hillary's lead is? Yeah, I think I think it always should only be one part of the mix and it should be something that informs a more substantive debate about policy. I do think um, the sense of whether you think that Donald Trump is a realistic chance of being elected is relevant to the way you talk about him and the way you talk about his issues. I think if people... Uh, had a more realistic sense of his chances of getting elected, I think the media coverage would have been different. So I think it is relevant, but I do think it's a danger when it when it um, overwhelms the rest of it. That it's the you have these numbers that have this sense of objectivity that means that they can grab a lot of the media attention. Mark, did you get an impression from the polls and from what you were watching that Hillary was a sure thing? Yes, I think the the last point that Ben made there was probably what happened for us being so remote uh, from the US that you, you start to look at those numbers as if they are objective reality and and sort of beyond interpretation. And one of the the, the quirks, I guess, of, of our system is when we keep saying that we want evidence-based conversations, we want to have you know robust debates that are based on evidence, and we keep hearing the word evidence over and over again, if we have a population that is just fundamentally unable, ill-equipped, to engage with that evidence, we end up with the sorts of debates that we've had where uh, people just cannot really grapple and sort of debate reasonably what's going on without sort of filtering it through that that misguided lens of what the numbers actually mean. Well, talking about evidence-based news, there was fake news articles flying every which way in the lead up to this election. There was that fake news article claiming the Pope had endorsed Trump. It was shared on Facebook over about a million times. I mean... Ruby, how influential do you think these kind of fake pieces are? As much as we complain about mainstream media, there is a a sense of more reliability. Um, And if only one outlet has this great scoop on Clinton or this great scoop on uh, Trump, then it's probably, and it's a very small one, then you, it's probably safe to say it's, it's not true. And that's something I think probably everyone, no matter where the political leanings are, should keep in mind. But in terms of what effect would it have, um, it probably would have, but more, I think more in the sense of, of uh, confirming what people already believe because they need that, that sort of confirmation. I don't think those sorts of outlets and articles change people's minds. I, I don't know. I don't well, think. With that said, to what extent do you think it's Facebook's responsibility to weed out fake news? Facebook is media. And so, yeah, I, I think they maybe do have a responsibility to look at particular websites and where they're coming from. And it's kind of hard to do. I mean, how do they do that? Unless they sort of, they block the well-known, uh, the well-known sites that, that are sort of, sort of sp- spurting out all this information. But I don't know, like that's a hard one for me. Um, I don't I think it's up to us as well to, you know, when we see these articles and this, It's interesting that you mentioned there that Facebook is part of the media. I mean, Zuckerberg would would have uh, take issue with that for sure. He considers it simply a a platform for the news to present itself. Uh, He likes to keep that distance, and it's politically safe for him, I guess. I think it's interesting that uh, I like. I think the issue is not just with fake news; it's also with outlets that in the outside world might not have a lot of credibility but I know in my Facebook feed I saw a lot of um, very wishful thinking about Bernie Sanders' chances that didn't really reflect the political reality about 
not quite conspiracy theories, but outlandish ways that he could win at the point where really his chances of winning didn't exist. And I'm sure there's lots of similar things on other parts of the political spectrum. Yeah. Um, one thing I find interesting with Facebook is Facebook has gotten very good at making all of the media look the same. Um, and I think it's interesting that when you go to a website, you get kind of visual cues about whether it's credible and serious based on how good the website looks. And That's interesting. Are you speaking specifically about um, Facebook instant articles, those that are hosted on Facebook without having uh, to direct through partly, to a website? Yeah, when I'm reading a Facebook instant article, sometimes I'll forget what outlet I'm reading from. And mm. so I'll read a lot of articles from credible websites that I go to and then occasionally I'll be reading something else. And it kind of makes you think it's... You kind of lose that natural sense that we have of um, is this credible, is this serious, should I be listening to what this outlet says? I think that's interesting. But also when you're on the... Fa- even on the on um, the desktop computer, before you click through to the article, it is often hard to see what the website is, whether it's a, whether it's a website um, that you should have put a lot of credibility in. And I think that is interesting because it kind of turns all text and all media into this kind of um, indistinguishable sludge. Mark, to what extent do you think it matters that news outlets have centralised around Washington and New York? I mean, if reporters are mostly based on the coasts, um, because and which means that then smaller local newspapers have gone under. Does that mean that we're not hearing from people in the middle of the country and that the media was biased and misrepresentative in their coverage of the election? I don't think we would hear from small and regional media anyway. We've had small regional media in Australia uh, going back, and very rarely does anything bubble up over there that ends up in sort of mainstream discussion. To that end, I think that the conversation's wrong. I think that we have a population that consumes its media by and large based on what it wants to read and what it wants to see anyway. And that has massive implications for our political debates, regardless of whether or not you actually... And I do think we should have more diversity in the you know, the number of voices that we have in journalism and the media. But even if you do have that diversity, it doesn't matter if the audience doesn't want to hear anything that they don't want to you know, hear, if they don't want to read anything they don't want to read, and they're going to filter for themselves those outlets. I, I guess, though, there's, you know, what news gets reported back to Australia. So you've got the likes of CNN, an international broadcaster who can relay news back to its syndicates in Australia. But then what about people seeing themselves reflected in the media and journalists taking a genuine pulse check of regional communities if there are no longer regional broadcasters and, and regional newspapers to do that work. Isn't that a problem? And wouldn't you say that's one of the contributing factors to how the media was blindsided by this election? Uh, I come from regional Australia. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly say that actually being able to identify... Uh, look, I am also white and male, and so that probably you know reduces the need for me to be able to see somebody that you know looks like me in the media when I can flick on the television. Uh, but... I I wonder about the utility of us sending Australians, for example, over to the United States to cover the U.S. media. When we do, as you say, you know, we have this access immediately to CNN. We have access to some of the best, you know, political commentators who are actually embedded in the cultures that are giving rise to the narratives of that political debate. Why do we actually need one of us to be over there also doing that story as well? Precisely for that reason, wouldn't you argue, that if you're within it, then you don't know what you're doing, but if you're from without, then you have a certain critical distance? I don't think you get the critical distance in the same way that, uh, you know, the, the, the... 
me writing about, say, Southeast Asian issues isn't really critical distance. I'm, I'm sort of still seeing things through my own filters and going mm-hmm. in there. What I actually want to do is, is perhaps see more of what's going on. That, that might be, to an extent, an incoherent argument, right? You, I might be saying, well, what I want is a translator who's there, who is me, who filters things that are there and, and feeds them back to me. But we don't get that ordinarily within the Anglosphere, for example, when the voice that is, you know, from CNN is equally good as the Australian that we send over. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm speaking with Ben Rowie, Ruby Hammond, and Mark Fletcher. People have said Hillary lost because of her elitism. Well, is she elite, or did she just look that way next to Trump? Trump said the media elite, pretty much all of the national broadcasters aside from Fox, were out to get him. It's one thing coming from Trump, but it's another coming from the Herald Sun's Rita Pahani who wrote, quote, the election result serves as a wake-up call to the sneering media and political ruling classes whose disdain for the mainstream will ultimately be their undoing. Ruby, does that ring true for you? Huh. Yeah, thank you for making me read that article today, by the way. <laughs> I'm kidding. Look, no, I, I'm always amazed at the way people who, by people, I mean people in the media or in politics, who are clearly not part of struggling Australia or the Rust Belt in in the US, aligning themselves with the battler, the struggler, uh, to sneer at this so-called elite. Um, You know, Rita Panahi is quite a wealthy person who gets paid very well to write her opinions, but uh, she's built up her brand, obviously, by playing to and and regurgitating the the, uh, opinions of what she regards as the mainstream. But in terms of... Did the media get it wrong? Uh, obviously, is Clinton elite? Well, well, yes. I mean, she's very wealthy. She's been in politics her entire adult life, pretty much. Uh, she's the former first lady, so it's like it's she is obviously part of the establishment. But this idea that Donald Trump isn't is a little bit of a joke, uh, because he is as well, and obviously he's he's doing the same thing that Rita does. The I'm really with you. I'm not with them. And it worked. Mark, what about you? Do you think it's uh, disdain or a more innocent but no less excusable disconnect? What do you reckon? Uh, I disagree with Rita. Um, I'm right-wing and conservative myself. And I think that this is actually uh, the Republican Party basically caving on its moral authority to be part of the political system. So the more that we pander to this really nasty aspect of the electorate, uh, the more it's just going to come back and bite us. I don't think it's really a reaction of ordinary people with authentic, you know, anxieties and, you know, oh, we just didn't listen to them. It, it's it's more accurately that political opportunism means that you are going to try to inflame the very worst in people to get this sort of really nasty populist outcome. And sitting there and gloating and saying that this is the, you know, the end of the elites is just extremely short-sighted. Ben? I mean, we know that um, journalists and most people who work in the media tend to be more progressive, more left-wing, and that's it's a common story in every election. But I think, I think it's a mistake to take that as the story of Trump's election. Like... Uh, this was on an entirely different level. It wasn't individual journalists. It wasn't the entire media. Uh, it was 
almost every editorial in the country, including small rural papers in very red states that almost universally endorsed Clinton, including outlets that have existed since the 19th century, the last, you know, have, um, haven't, haven't endorsed a Democrat since Lincoln, who endorsed Hillary Clinton. So I think, I think it's a mistake to normalize this situation that uh, Trump is genuinely an abnormal person in terms of American politics, the agenda he's pursued. And this was an unusual moment for the media to take this position. And yes, there is, there can be a disconnect sometimes between parts of the media and the whole country, but I think this is a unique situation. But it's also, it's it's a common piece of propaganda to rail about the elites. You know, yes, there are elites in this country, but I think it's become this right-wing code word for left-wing. And uh, I, think, I think buying that is ridiculous. Um, you know, when you have people like Malcolm Turnbull and Donald Trump, uh, railing about elites um it's it's just ridiculous like (laughs) hillary clinton yes she's a very privileged person she's had a very privileged life as has donald trump as have most prominent american politicians and many australian politicians uh but a large part of her base you know to to kind of paint uh you know the the black working class and um, latino voters of america who tended to vote for hillary clinton as elites um comes it's just absurd when you actually think it through um, yes, there are there are elites in the Democratic Party. There are elites in the media. There are also very strong elites in the Republican Party who have come in behind Trump. It's interesting that you mentioned the editorialising and the, the posturing of certain media outlets um, um, throughout this campaign and uh, that how many were willing to align themselves with, with Hillary or at least outright say Trump is not fit to lead. To what extent do you think that that was in Hillary's favour and to what extent do you think that um, that just agitated those people who believe that there is a media elite and that that further ingrained in their eyes that Trump is the underdog and that he needs their support because everybody else is out against him? I actually think more likely than it helping Trump or helping Clinton is that it didn't have a big impact. It was a symptom rather than a an, a cause of the result. And uh, to be honest, I think it's a sign of the, the weakening power of the media. We've seen in Australia um, News Limited running big political campaigns to influence elections and having less influence than they have in the past. And I think um, it does suggest that the media is less influential in how um, politics works. Well, Tom Switzer wrote how, despite Pauline Hanson being back in office, the likes of Trump could not be Prime Minister in Australia. Ruby, do you agree? Yeah, probably not for entirely the same reasons. I think that you have to look in in terms of, you know, Brexit as well and the US election. You have to look at at the demographics and a lot of the fear that was driving the vote, uh, particularly the the white vote. the only racial and ethnic majority that gave their vote to Clinton was the white vote, both male and female. And the re- the way that he was able to, you know, get this popular support was providing the scapegoats, the Mexicans, the blacks, the Muslims. And a lot of that, I think, was able to work in a way it wouldn't work here enough is because the, the white people are becoming a minority in the US and... In the UK, it'll happen a lot quicker than it'll ever happen here. I think white uh, white Australians are the, the you know they're, they're such a majority. There's the that they're not going to ever really genuinely sort of be in fear of being out uh, 
populated. That uh, said, Pauline Hanson got voted in in a maiden speech when she, she, <laughs> she said that we're okay. going to be swamped by Asians. Well, it works. But at the moment, it's still only going to work for a, a small uh, amount of the population who are going to be swayed entirely by their fear. In terms of, I think there is a much more fear in the US of this idea of, of white people becoming a minority in what they see as their own land. And we can't, we can't really sort of ignore the entitlement of a lot of the white vote, this idea that, yeah, they, of course, a lot of them are disaffected. We can't ignore economics here at all. But there is a, a sense of, well, this is my country. I should be doing well. It's like they promise. They, they promise that. They promise prosperity. And when it's not, doesn't come their way, the leaders like Trump and Hanson, well, they know who to blame. After the election, CNN CEO Jeff Zucker admitted that CNN probably shouldn't have aired Trump's speeches in full, that in doing so without commentary was effectively giving him um, a platform. Do you agree that that's an apology that he should have made, Ben? Yeah, I do. I think uh, I think you need to be careful about how you distribute media coverage. And Trump genuinely, and this is part of the reason that I'm a bit sceptical of the impact of the fake news on Facebook. A lot of real news had a big impact on, on Facebook and other mediums um, because we've now seen the evidence that uh, the Trump campaign got more than twice as much coverage on some of these major American networks than the Clinton campaign and many times more than the than his rival Republican candidates. And I think there is a danger that the media falls into the trap of uh, going for the most interesting story. And I think Trump is a consummate media performer and knew how to kind of create controversy and um, be unpredictable in a way that worked and got him a lot more attention, whereas a, a less unpredictable politician wouldn't have gotten anywhere near as much media attention. Interesting. Voters were also always told that Hillary Clinton was one of the most qualified candidates ever. I mean, I personally find that a pretty compelling argument, but I wonder if a public who's fed up with the establishment would read that as just being told what's good for them. Mark, um, what do you what do you think in terms of um, framing the message? Is that a tactic that works against the Democrats' best interests? When you have such incredible resentment towards intellectuals, almost sort of globally. So we hate experts, we hate authority. We've been told the whole way through that how dare the government come around and tell me what to do. And, you know, we see it with climate change. We see it with a whole host of, of these sorts of debates. I think, yeah, Hillary uh, standing up and saying, look, I'm the expert, I'm the, the most qualified candidate, uh, was probably going to put a whole lot of people offside if they're simultaneously told, look, it's the experts' reason why, you know, we have to shut down the manufacturing plants because of CO2 in the air and so on and so forth. Uh, but I don't think it's, I, I, in no way do I think that this is authentic rage, right? Mm -hmm. At no point do I think that uh, this has spontaneously come up from the population. The population has been told to think this. It's mm -hmm. been told very cynically to hate experts. How dare anybody tell you that you are not the expert? Uh, how dare anybody tell you that they know more than you? You should work everything out for yourself and, and make up your own mind about the evidence. And, and that's been done very, very cynically here. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm speaking with Ben Rowie, Ruby Hammond and Mark Fletcher. The Turbo government has announced that a parliamentary inquiry will examine whether Sections 18C and Section 18D of the Racial Discrimination Act impose unreasonable restrictions on free speech. 
To a lot of people, this issue seems to have been in the headlines for an unreasonably long time. The Guardian's Richard Ackland wrote, quote, Surely it cannot be the right moment to dilute race-hate laws when Trumpism is on a global march with its direct appeal to racism and xenophobia. But is this exactly what the why the issue is so hot, Ruby? Yeah, uh, obviously. Um, I think when it comes to the push to overturn these laws, we have to look at who is most uh, vociferous about it and why. And we've, you know, we've all seen that that graphic that went around uh, Facebook of of all the the politicians, and it's it's all mostly all white all white politicians, mostly men. So who's going to benefit from most? I would say they are because they're they're the demographic that's still in in power. And so this idea that we should be able to freely insult and offend and vilify, etc., anyone that we want is always going to work more in favour of them because it, it it's basically licensed to keep punching down, to keep minorities down, whether it's, it's racial minorities and women who are not a minority, obviously, but are still treated like one, white women, still treated like one. And that was why, for me, I'm automatically going to be suspicious of it. And I think something we have to really like try to re-grasp because we're losing is the difference between offending someone, you know, just uh, harmlessly, uh, you know, say by you know swearing or you know morally offending someone, and the difference between offending someone who is marginalised and uh, oppressed because that adds to their oppression. Mark, do you think it's something more than political opportunism at play here? Uh, I think the key problem with the Section 18C debate is that left liberals do not have a full-blooded defence of Section 18C. What we really need to do is have somebody who is going to stand up and say, look, this is the reason why it exists, and we're not going to change it, not because of some pragmatic reason that it's the wrong time to change it or because it might unleash a you know, wave of negativity or anything. We need somebody who is actually going to sit there and go, 18C is not only good, but it doesn't go far enough. It needs to cover a whole range of different minorities that need the protections of 18C, and somebody just needs to stand that line and say, no, it is a good thing in its own right, regardless of the context in which it operates. And because that doesn't exist, this debate, this sort of, you know, mealy-minded, tiny intuition anxiety about, oh, all these people are getting special protections and I'm not getting them, they just keep getting ventilated with the, you know, the think tanks of the IPA and the CIS for no good reason. Just very quickly, with a 10-second answer, Chris Merritt wrote for The Australian that ADNC is creating a culture of victimhood. Would you agree with that, Mark? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I think he's wrong. Okay. Well, that's all that we have time for on today's episode of Fourth Estate. Don't forget, as always, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. And of course, you can catch us at the same time next week. My name's Marcus Costello. That's it for this week. 